Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thomas Marshall Eubanks, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Marshall, you have written a recent paper about the idea of catching up to one of the strangest things we've ever seen in astronomy so far, Oumuamua, or 1A Oumuamua. And this was a really strange object that did not really behave like what our first detected <laughs> interstellar object should have. It We should have seen Borisov's. Now, what is your view on what the idea of this object could be? I mean, there's been a lot of ideas floated, but all of them are out there. So what could we learn from this object by catching up to it? And how do we do that? Well, you're totally correct. I mean, everybody was expecting that the first interstellar objects would be interstellar comets. And partially that's because comets are easy to see, like Borisov was. You know, they, they sit there, they put out lots of gas, lots of dust. And they're much bigger than whatever size they actually have. I mean, Borisov was probably a kilometer or so in size. We don't really know. But its coma was much larger. It was like Earth-Moon distance. And much bigger to see that kind of size than a kilometer in deep space. And so everybody was sort of expecting that. And there wasn't really a lot of ideas. I mean, it wasn't really a lot of consensus on how many smaller objects you should have. Clearly, they should be smaller objects. I mean, objects hit other objects and make smaller objects, and so they should be smaller interstellar objects or ISOs. But how many was very uncertain. And then there were a few papers out there that kind of indicated that it wasn't really that, shouldn't really be that common. And in fact, when Oumuamua, I think that's how you say it, first hit the minor planet mailing list and the comet mailing list, I immediately picked up on this is very unusual. It's something that people may not realize. We actually find what you might consider interstellar objects all the time. They are comets from the Oort cloud from the outer solar system that are just barely interstellar. And there's a certain amount of slop, both in the sense that our measurements aren't perfect. And so something may appear to be a little faster than it actually is. And so we count it as possibly interstellar and possibly not. But also because comets outgas, they put out gas, that's, that's a thrust. It's like a rocket, exactly like a rocket. It thrusts them around, it moves them around. And they're perturbed by everything out there, Jupiter, Saturn, but also smaller objects. And so historically, it's been very hard to say if a comet is, say, 50 meters a second, 150 feet per second, over the dividing line from being bound to the sun to being not bound to the sun, is that actually a, a, a stellar object or not? And there's enough of those kind of objects that the presumption is, eh, it's, it's, those are really probably not interstellar. 
again, there might be some interstellar objects mixed up in them, but it seems likely that they're just like, they're just Oort cloud objects that got moved around a little bit. And so, but when Muamua was first discovered, right away, first couple of days, like two days or three days after the first alert went out, it was already pretty clear that it was, it was way above the dividing line. And I like to describe that in terms of the velocity at infinity. The velocity, when it's infinitely far, arbitrarily far from the sun, when you come in and when you go out, say a few hundred AU in either direction. And for these inter possible interstellar comets that are really or cloud comets, that velocity is typically like half a kilometer a second, 500 meters a second, which is a couple of hundred miles an hour. For Wumuamua, it was much larger. It was 18 kilometers a second, I believe. That's, that's big enough that you're not just going to, you know, some random jostling is not going to create that kind of velocity. That's way faster than... Well, it's faster than any spacecraft we've ever we've ever sent. It's faster than Voyager One, which is our fastest spacecraft. You know, it's it was like right away, little bells started going off for me at least, saying this is a very unusual object. And the trouble was, it was already past perihelion. It was already on its way out of the solar system, and it was already moving away from the Earth. Worse, it had come in sort of from the sun side. We hadn't seen it because it was obscured by the sun. It was picked up by pan stars as soon as. Both got a little bit away from the sun, but also it slowed down enough. It turned out that back then people weren't looking for fa really fast moving objects. And the, the software would just automatically reject anything that's too fast moving because it's fast moving. It's got to be an Earth satellite, not a, not a comet or an asteroid. As soon as it fell below the Pan-Star's limit, it was picked up. And within a few days, I was sort of jumping up and down and saying, this is, this is important. But there wasn't much we could do about it, except people like Karen Meach and the like took pictures or took his uh, uh, spectra and, and looked at it with telescopes. But there was no chance of sending a interstellar, uh, uh, sorry, a spacecraft to this interstellar object. Just no chance because it was not enough time. You'd have to have one literally ready to go, like on a rocket, like down at Cape Canaveral or something, ready, you know, ready to go. And we didn't have that. And if you've dealt with space travel at all, that takes time. <laughs> It's not like ICBMs in their silos ready to go. You can't just say to SpaceX or whoever, you know, ULA, SpaceX, whoever, take that payload off. We want to put this payload on. It doesn't work like that at all. Uh, not even the president could do that. And so we had to watch it go on out. And, and then as it went out, we, all the weirdnesses started to come in. The high, um, the irregular, it's a, it's, it was in a chaotic rotation, which is not unheard of, but it had a very high magnitude change as it rotated around. The magnitude is the brightness of the object. And so this is saying either that the object had a very dark part and a very light part, or that it was very elongated. If you see the artist's impression, impersonation, impressions that are pretty ubiquitous on the web of this object, if you look it up online, you'll see it look like a cigar or some long tube thing, or maybe even like Arthur Clarke's Rama spacecraft, which is much larger in the novel. Um, but that's actually an inference. It could have been circular, uh, spherical, and just had big spots on it. We don't, we don't know. You know, we didn't resolve it. We never saw it, really, except for one pixel. And also it had anomalous acceleration, which means that it was pushing out, pushing away from the sun. And that's unusual, too. 
not unheard of but unusual. And generally that's associated with heavy outgassing with comets that have heavy jets that are really pushing gas out. So they basically have rockets. You know, if you, if you look at the images of Rosetta, the spacecraft, uh, the satellite that, um, or sorry, the 20, is it 29P? This periodic comet that the Rosetta spacecraft went to, it had jets that were really much like rocket jets, just little narrow jets of gas coming up. And those things will push the comet one way or another. Well, we, people looked, I was not one of the lookers, I don't do that kind of astronomy, but people looked, they didn't see anything. And finally, towards the end of its period near the Earth, they got time on the Spitzer telescope, which is an infrared telescope, since been decommissioned, and they did a fairly deep observation of that, and they were expecting to see carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide, one of these other common gases that have, that are bright in the infrared, that have spectral lines in the infrared, they didn't see anything. So this is part of why it's, it's considered to be so mi mysterious. It seems to have been accelerated, but we don't know why it was accelerated. We do know that if you want to take that acceleration and assume it was some sort of you know, solar radiation pressure, the sun has light, light has you know, energy, which means it has momentum. So when it hits you, you're pushed. We don't feel it here on Earth because it's so light, but solar sails were used. That you get a number that's, sort of like a solar sail in terms of mass per area. The, the mass has to be, the mass per area has to be very low for Oumuamua to, you know, to, to explain that as a, as a um, uh, uh, ra radiation pressure. And that was why, you know, Avi Loeb and some others said, oh, maybe this is, a, maybe this is alien. And I think a lot of people thought that right away. I, I thought it, I know some other people thought it, just because it was whizzing through the solar system and maybe somebody said, uh, maybe some alien civilization says, oh, look at those people down there. Let's check them out. Send this probe by and, you know, take pictures or something. One trouble with that is Oumuamua doesn't appear to come from anywhere or go to anywhere in a local sense. The, the direction it's coming from, the incoming radiant, is just apparently empty space. There's no stars there for some considerable distance. And in fact, nobody's ever been able to say Oumuamua is coming from a certain star system. And also the direction it's going to is likewise blank. And so if this was an alien probe, you have to ask, well, who sent it and when? And, you know, if you sort of run numbers on that, you kind of get, but probably it was sent. Even if it was an alien probe sent to explore the solar system, it was sent maybe 100,000 years ago or more. And then well, why would they send it to us back when we were in caves painting pictures and not building spacecraft? So I, I, I don't feel like it was really sent to check up on our civilization because if it was, then that means it was sent from somewhere fairly near to us. And then that means that there's a spacecraft or so not too far out there, like 100 AU maybe, that's sending probes down on us. <laughs> Interesting notion. Or science fiction story, but I don't think, you know, I, that just doesn't seem likely to me. So it's a mystery. It's a something from another planet, another solar system, probably from another planet. We don't know what it is. It's probably just a rock, frankly. Uh, there have been other ideas. It's a big nitrogen iceberg or even a hydrogen iceberg. Neither of those appeal to me very much, but maybe. We don't know where, what it is, but one thing we do know for sure, 100%, it is a rock from another solar system that is much easier to get to than any actual other solar system. Getting to it, even now, 
is much, much easier than going to Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri or Sirius or any nearby star. Setting, setting the idea of an alien artifact aside and just looking at the, the idea that the very first interstellar object that we've really been able to identify, as you, as you pointed out, is a really weird rock. You know, and then the second one wasn't. <laughs> or so, second one seems pretty normal, frankly. Yeah, yeah so you, you see a comet, <laughs> and it's just sort of like any other comet. It's just moving. In fact, the second one is what everybody expected to find first. If we hadn't found Oumuamua, people would have said, oh, Borisov is exactly what we're expecting. And then we, 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 find, we find Oumuamua, and presumably this is part of a population, statistically speaking. But we must see lots of these, and if we don't, then we have a real problem on our hands um, when we activate something like the uh, Vera Rubin telescope. So, if we don't see more of these objects like Oumuamua, and we don't see a ready population of them over several years, that makes it much more important to go take a look, right? Well, the 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 the, the papers that were written before it was discovered, and one there was one that came out in just around the time it was discovered, but it had obviously been written beforehand, um, had a much lower... I mean, Oumuamua was discovered within three to five years, maybe a little more, of when the surveys got good enough, you would expect to find a rock like that with a brightness like that and so on. And so if that's the case, so if you sort of imagine... Well, every three or five years, you know, one would come through and pan stars or, or Catalina Sky Survey, one of these others would find it. Then that's that implies actually a fairly high density, about 0.1 per cubic AU, which may not sound like a lot, and obviously is a you know be far to walk to, but in in galactic terms, that's actually pretty dense. That's where you get these numbers of huge numbers of these guys, which a lot of people have thought like, man, these numbers are too high. But one of the things you can say is, well, it's been, that was 2017. It's been four years since then. We've doubled the time. In fact, I put this in a recent paper. We've doubled the time. So you got to lower that number by a factor of two. And I'm not 100% sure that those earlier papers weren't correct. And that we just happened to get really lucky, like winning, you know. You see, if you think about it in terms of winning a lottery, because people think about, well, people talk about that in the strong I mean, sometimes it's finding a certain observation, finding a supernova or something is like winning a lottery. Well, it was like winning a lottery ticket with a one chance in a hundred paying off. That's a pretty good payoff rate, right? It wasn't like one chance in a million. It was like one chance in a hundred. The rate we calculate is about a hundred times higher than the earlier rate. So that's like one in a hundred. That's, you know, you can win lotteries that are one in a hundred, <laughs> You can, you know, it's it's different than saying it's one in a million or one in a billion or whatever. But the other thing, and the thing that I really, really sort of like impresses me, I have a feeling that um, Ruben and other telescopes are going to find more rocks. I don't doubt that too much. But are they going to find a rock that's weird like this? Now, maybe all the rocks they find are going to be weird like this. In that case, okay, I'll shut up and we can just send a probe to, you know, whichever one is conveniently coming by. Um, but if we find 10 rocks, 10 interstellar objects that are rock-like coming through the solar system, and all of them seem just like ordinary asteroids, well, Oumuamua is still going to be out there. It's still going to be reachable. It's, you know, 
it's still going to be weird. And just finding 10 normal rocks is not going to explain why this one was weird. Now, Marshall, the idea of, regardless of any origin propositions, the idea that this is material that could be from the other side of the galaxy and give us some sort of insight on planetary formation other than Earth or uh, all these ideas, you know. The one thing about Oumuamua is that you have to get into crazy explanations no matter what you do to explain this object. You have to get into things that we have not seen in nature, hydrogen icebergs, nitrogen icebergs, and none of them are particularly uh, <laughs> particularly uh, <laughs> appealing as far as um, explanations go because they aren't really anything we've seen or, you know, the ideas of interstellar dust bunnies or aliens. And it, we don't have a normal explanation for this object. So that alone tells us that we should probably do what we can to take a look. But you've proposed a way to do that that doesn't involve the weird <laughs> sort of solar system calisthenics of, of swinging a probe past the sun to get up enough velocity to actually get there, but rather directly do so. How's that work? We've actually proposed that too, or at least discussed that. We have a paper on that one too. We have, we have a whole set of papers on this. I have been deeply in conversation with the, the interstellar probe team, which is a, not Interstellar probe is basically a particles and field mission that would go to deep space, 100 AU to 500 AU, and look at the interstellar medium and get magnetic field data and so on. But it could fly by something like Wumamwai if, if it was targeted properly. And there's been a lot of discussion about, well, the original idea we had was that you would go and do what's called an Oberth maneuver by the sun. And, and what that means is you go very close to the sun. So when you go very close to the sun, you're going very fast, like the Parker Solar Probe. And there's an interesting sort of tidbit of orbital mechanics that velocities add, but what really counts is your energy. And energy goes as a square. And so if you're whizzing by the sun at 300 kilometers a second, the little velocity that you add to it, so maybe you have 301 kilometers a second, you can then square that and... Remember, I said the velocity of infinity is what's really important for this. If you're catching it, it's in, the velocity of infinity is important too. And so you actually you actually gain energy from it's it's a it's a type of gravity assist. It's not like the normal kind of gravity assist, which is really about changing directions. This is a type of gravity assist where you're adding in, you know, you're adding in velocity and you're getting some energy out of it effectively. And over uh, first noticed this back in the 20s, I believe, and he wrote in German back then, and so wrote a German book about you know space travel, one of the early sort of compendiums on space travel, and described it back then. And I don't think it's actually ever been done, except that the same principle is why if you if you fire a multi-stage rocket, it's why the second stage starts firing as soon as the first stage stops. You might think, oh, I'll fire the first stage, I'll go it stops. I go up high and then I start to fall back down. And then at that point, peak of my trajectory, I'll fire the second stage. That's not what you do because you're not looking for velocity so much as energy. And you gain more energy through an overth maneuver by firing the second stage at the, at the time you're 
first stage burns out because that's when you're going the fastest. But aside from that sort of sort of, sort of trivial application, no, I don't think anybody's ever done this. However, the the interstellar mission people have looked into this in great detail, and they have some problems with the park with the solar probe maneuver, and it has to do with the mass of the of the of the uh, solar shield you would need. You're coming very close to the sun. You will be getting hundreds of kilowatts per square meter of power. That's a huge amount of power. That's, you know, a hundred times or more the sun sunlight we get here on the earth's surface. And, you know, it would fry a person in like a second or something like that very quickly. I mean, it's, it's literally, it's literally hotter than like self-cleaning oven type, you know, uh, radiance. So, you know, anything carbon would turn into dust. And so you can have these solar, you can have these, these, uh, these, uh, shields that protect you, but then they complicate the mission considerably. And we've gone through this and they've gone through this. And so we're, I think we're kind of both backing off from the idea of doing a covert maneuver around the sun. And that also requires in practice, something like going out to Jupiter, falling into the sun, getting very close to the sun, firing your rocket there with your shield and then going back out. And so that's a fairly comp, all those different steps add complexity and cost. And so the idea we've now explored with, and Adam Hibbert has really been taking the lead on this, is to go by Jupiter and do an overth maneuver there at Jupiter, firing the rocket. And technically, it's much, technologically, I should say, it's much easier. You're not in a very hot environment. There's, Jupiter's 300K and not, you know, 6,000K. It's not that hot. You don't have to worry about a shield like that. You know, you don't have to worry about being out of touch with the Earth because that's another problem. When you're doing these close solar encounters, you, you would no way would you be able to communicate very much with the Earth, maybe a bit per second or something like that, just to keep a live signal, I'm here, but you're not going to be able to get any instructions from the Earth and so on. So it makes the whole thing technologically much more doable, I think. And the real problem here in all of these things is, you know, well, who... You know, this is, would be an expensive mission and who would pay for it? But you really could do a mission. And the current mission profile we have would be a, a so-called VEGA profile, v, you know, a Venus gravity assist, I believe two Earth gravity assists. And then the last one of those would bring us out to Jupiter. And then we could do this gravity assist plus over maneuver where you're doing a gravity assist to Jupiter and firing your rockets until you get the over gain and uh, and then going out to to Mamwa. And and we've we've run a bunch of the sample missions on this, and you know we found one that it's a long mission, but I think any mission to get out there now it's it's moving away six AU a year, so every year you wait is that much harder to get get to it, and that much long it'll take that much longer to get to it. Now, before we go there, um, current launch systems that we have coming online now, there it's no secret that we're building really big launch systems again on level standard five so we can really do some high energy stuff to maybe get out there what's the best launch system for this project well the biggest one we can afford and i'm not trying to be i'm not trying to be funny there i mean literally originally we were thinking of a falcon heavy wasn't big enough and then we're looking at an sls because it's bigger and now we're looking at uh, Starshot, I think it's called, because it's bigger still. And one trouble I have is neither one of these are really in what you might call production. 
But I think by the time any such any such spacecraft could be ready to go, I think one of these will be available. But yes, if somebody wants to build a bigger rocket, well, we can consider that one too. Um, so say we have an ideal situation where we have a huge rocket that's cheap, <laughs> yeah, comparatively like Starship or whatever. Um, SLS probably never be cheap, but regardless. Probably not, yes. But. Yeah, so regardless, say we can get it out there in, with current technology. Let's put it in, in that, that frame. When can we expect to actually get some results from studying Umuamu with such a probe? Well, you get them back fast because it'll never be further than about a light day away in any mission profile we're talking about. But the particular mission we're talking about right now has a launch in 2028, which means, you know, in mission sense, we need to start preparing the, 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 the rocket and not the rocket, the um, spacecraft right now. Um, that's not that far off, six years, and would have a vo- total time of flight to one eye uh, of 26 years. And so that would get you there about 2054, I think in 2054. And again, it's moving away. And so the, basically you can fly these, I believe, about once a year or once every 13 months or something like that. The orbital windows repeat. But everyone will just take you that much longer to get to because it'll be that much further away populations of interstellar objects so one thing we do know is that they certainly exist and they have a diversity you know we one of them we couldn't explain the other one looked like something that (laughs) we would have dismissed as a comet you know from the Oort cloud had it not been moving so fast so we have this weird mystery that there is a a huge variance in what interstellar object could be so what of the idea of having some ready to catch a um, object like Oumuamua that's of interest and build some kind of infrastructure to launch and catch them when they pass through from here on out? Well, yes. I mean, that's, that's a logical idea. If you, if you don't want to spend the 26 years getting to it, wait for the next one to come through and get to it. And in fact, we... I think we have something in press, not, not a whole paper, but in a paper. I think we discussed that a little bit. There's, there's basically, I mean, the trouble is, like, take 2i Borisov. That's a fairly bright comet. And in fact, I've run numbers on that, and I don't think we're going to see much more than one every 50 years or so. Now, that's a statistical thing, like, you know, flipping a coin or something. You might see one next year. But on average, I think we'll see one like that, maybe two a century something like that. So the next one might be in 50 years. But the, the smaller guys, the one-eyes, or the one-eye umuamua type objects, yes, we expect with the telescopes we have and with the new telescopes that are coming online, in particular the nice 8-meter Vera Rubin telescope, the LSST, we expect that to be able to find more of these. Maybe, maybe lots, maybe a few, but more. And, and a regular diet. And so you could say, well, we'll find one a year or we'll find two a year, or maybe we'll find one every two years, something like that. And so we should be able to say, we'll send something. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you prepare for that? And I think there's really three ways people have talked about. One is you just say, we're going to send a mission. And so we build a rocket and then we send it to whatever is available. So if, if it's not an interstellar object, we send it to a regular comet or something. Okay. But the trouble with that is, you know, you might do that a bunch of times and never get an interstellar object. 
So if you're really trying to get an interstellar object, that's probably not the best mission plan. And the other one is you have something ready to launch. The trouble with having something ready to launch is, well, it's not like there's an infinite number of, of you can't launch this from a missile silo. People ask me that sometimes. The missiles and the missile silos don't have enough delta V to get to an interstellar object, even if it happened to be just whizzing right by the Earth. So you got to launch it from a launch site like, like the one in Guinea for ESA or the one at Cape Canaveral or Vandenberg, one of those. And those are busy and those are used. And the rockets are also you know, used. And so it's not like you can just say, ah, keep a rocket standing by on this launch pad. It doesn't work like that. You, you, know, you, won't, you won't be able to get that. And so that means, I mean, Borisov was detected, I believe, 18 months before its closest approach to the sun. That's actually a fairly large time for a new comet, much less a new asteroid of this type of an interstellar asteroid. And so that's not a lot of time to put a rocket, to, to put together a manifest, as they say, to have a rocket that's yours, that has that you're on the manifest for, and it's like, this rocket is going to launch my spacecraft. So even if you have your spacecraft already to go in or keeping it in some warehouse or something at Cape Canaveral, you know, that's probably not going to work. You might get lucky, but probably not going to work. And so that suggests you put it out in space because then you've already launched it. You don't have to worry about the launch pad. You can just say, well, we'll launch on whatever rocket, you know, we get manifested on and uh, we get out there and we wait. And then the question is, well, where do you wait? And we've actually looked at that too. And it sort of depends on, well, what kind of, how close do you think it's going to be? What's your Delta V? We could have sent a rocket to Umwamwa we would have had to launch it about three months before it was found, but we could have sent one there without, without too big a, a Delta V. And I don't, personally, I don't regard this as quite settled yet. There's a comet interceptor mission that ESA is talking about. There's various proposals to do solar sails and so on. And I feel like this is not, is not yet reached enough maturity. We can say, this is absolutely the best way to do it. Put it in the Lagrange point is probably what we'll wind up doing. But, but maybe somebody else will come up with a brighter idea and we'll do something else. And it's, it requires a lot of simulations to make sense of this because they could be coming from any direction. They can have any velocity. They can you know, come any distance from the sun they want to, in, in a sense, that so you're talking about. It's trying to like predict a dart before you know, the dart comes through. Or maybe a better word, analogy would be predict a hailstone before any hail fall, falls and, and then try and you know, reach one and rendezvous with it or catch it. The advantage is, though, that at least in principle, you could rendezvous with one of these things. It's not just you're going to fly by at some high rate of speed, 10 kilometers a second or something, like a super rifle bullet. You could potentially actually match velocities and then orbit it or land it or even maybe bring, bring sample returns back. Although that's, we've run sample missions on that. That's pretty tough to do. You kind of have to be really lucky on that one. Um, but you almost certainly, if you had a, you know, enough money, you could set it up so you could actually rendezvous with one of these guys and take a close look at it. Now, what is the idea of very small probes? Now, I know you have worked in the uh, field of very, very small satellites, 50 gram satellites in low Earth orbit. Just to get a picture of it and just to get a characterization, can we miniaturize something like a spectrograph or something like that to catch up with one of these objects with a very, very small payload? Well, yes. Now, are you talking here about one eye or are you talking about a new object? About 
anything. Um, About anything? So we, yes. Anything. I mean, yeah. Just just send a little tiny probe to you know that that doesn't require a an enormous launch system that costs tens of billions of dollars in increasing funds, and just send something out there that weighs 50 grams. Well, the breakthrough Starshot is talking about using laser laser beaming, laser propulsion, but it's not a laser rocket. It's a laser on the ground pushing a very small spacecraft, a sailcraft or laser craft out. I mean, ideally to go to someplace like Alpha Centauri, one of those, in my opinion, would be a very, very near ideal way of getting into interstellar objects flying through the solar system. Because, yes, you could say, we'll send a probe to every one of them. If it, it wouldn't, I mean, it's much, it's much less expensive than sending something to Alpha Centauri because you need much less velocity. You need 30 kilometers a second instead of 100,000 kilometers a second. So that's a huge energy difference. It goes as a square, remember. So you're talking about, you know, one one hundred millionth the energy or something like that. And so, yes, the, the numbers for Breakthrough Starshot to get to Proxim Centauri are daunting, you know, in terms of like billions of dollars worth of lasers and so on and so forth. Um, the, num- the, the idea of sending a sailcraft to an ISO that's whizzing through the solar system is much more doable. And the communication is also much more doable because you're not talking about something that's uh, four light years away, you're talking about something that's maybe an astronomical unit, 100 million, 150 million kilometers away. And even, you know, a watt would be big enough to pick up from a 100 million kilometers away. Because after all, it would be a very quick flyby. We could we could wrangle together every big telescope on that side of the Earth and, you know, try and get the data from it. And a big radio telescope. Um, uh, or if you used optical, you'd, you know, wrangle wrangle all the optical telescopes that would point at it to get the data from it. So either way, yes, I think I actually think that is a very attractive use for this technology in the near term. It's like I think Breakthrough Starshot is building some amazing stuff and the, the question is, okay, it'll take a while to actually send one to a nearby star system. I will take, that's, that's very tough and it'll take a while, but you could act, if you had that technology working today, you could actually send it to, well, like, for example, Apophis. Apophis is not an interstellar object. It's, a, it's an asteroid. Apophis is going to come very close to the Earth in 2029, I believe. Um, it would be a very easy target for something like Breakthrough Starshot if they had the lasers and so on ready to go. I don't know whether they will or not. Um, I'm not privy to those decisions. But that would be, that's the sort of thing where, yes, I think, I mean, you, know, you could say to the planetary defense people, we'll send a sailcraft to every potentially hazardous asteroid as it comes by the Earth. Every one of them. I don't care how big it is. I don't care if it's you know Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere. We'll, we'll just get to every one of them. Yes, and there will be a small spacecraft. It will have, you know, less, very small spacecraft. Think cell phones, except cell phones are big compared to these things. Um, but... Yeah, you can have a camera, you can have a mass spectrometer, possibly. You can have a certainly you can have optical spectrometers. Um, you can you can hit the thing with one and look at what happens with another, so you get some idea of the, of the spectral content that way. There's quite a lot you can have a magnetometer, so on and so forth. You there's quite a lot you can do with a very small spacecraft nowadays. I mean, your cell phone has magnetometers, accelerometers, various radio receivers, GPS receivers various transmitters, you know, and so on. Your cell phone would actually not be a very bad spacecraft if, if that was all you had. Now, you, 
obviously wouldn't want the touchscreen, but you know, all the rest, you know, you could do some decent science with your cell phone. Uh, this this begs a question, though, because given that we've watched the miniaturization of our technology over the last decades, the fact that we can put a computer that used to be the size of a desktop into the size of a cell phone, yet the cell phone's better, this means that we're moving increasingly towards miniaturization for spacecraft, obviously. Now, can you see a a day, an end game where it gets even smaller? Or are we gonna hit a limit? I think we'll hit a. I think we'll hit a limit. I think the limit will be uh, communications. Frankly, now, I should say that I met my wife at a computer center, and that computer center had one gigabyte of fast storage, of RAM storage, and that took a quite large room that was full of washing machine sized disk drives. And so a gigabyte used to be like a whole floor of a building. And now your cell phone has got 32 or 64, you know, 128 or whatever um, of these gigabytes. And so your cell phone has more power literally than a huge computer center did a few decades ago. So, yes, but the trouble is going to be, in my opinion, the trouble is going to be how do you get stuff back? Because in the end, I mean, let's think of it in optical terms. If you're sending an optical signal back, you're sending photons. You're sending a finite number of photons, a large number, but finite. You've got to get at least one back from on the Earth. You have to get, if you don't get any photons back, you don't have any signal, you don't know anything. You have to get at least one back. And as you get further and further away, or as you get smaller and smaller, because as you get smaller, you have less power, you have less antenna size and so on and so forth um the, the the difficulty of getting one photon back increases and so even if you're i mean for example you might send a probe that just said i see something funny or i don't you know this looks like an alien spaceship or it doesn't say you're trying to do SETI. um you're sending one bit back and so you could say well a red photon means no no interest and a blue photon means go Green photon means go. So you're sending, you know, one of two photons back. And you, so on spacecraft, you're sending lots of photons back here. You're trying to get one. But if you don't get that one, you don't have anything. And so I think that's going to limit you. And I just, I don't, except for making swarms of them, which is a slightly different thing. So, yes, I don't think you're going to be sending milligram spacecraft. I don't, by themselves. I just, I don't see that. I don't see how you get anything back from it. But you might be sending milligram spacecraft, lots of them, that act as a swarm that send something back together in a coherent fashion. Now, we couldn't do that now. This is beyond our technology. But we could send 10 gram, not milligram, but 10 gram spacecraft. So we could send little, you know, uh, credit cards, for example. The chipsets are credit card size. You can imagine taking a whole bunch of credit cards and sending them to a planet or asteroid or interstellar object or whatever. And they all work together and they all communicate and then they send back in some efficient fashion what they're doing to the earth. And so it's power and numbers. So one of them, no, we would be useless. We'd never see it. But maybe if we sent thousand or hundred thousand or whatever, we could get something back. And that's actually something we're working on right now with the, with our colleagues in the Institute for Interstellar Studies U.S., is how would you make such a swarm of spacecraft and how would you do stuff with it and how would you use it to get stuff back to Earth? 
Um, because after all, that's again, if you don't get it back to earth, it doesn't really make any sense. It, you have to get it back. Now, can we build a relay network, say a solar system full of cell towers or the equivalent thereof, that can perform a multifunction role and relay back to us weak signals from tiny probes to whatever we want to do, whether we want to go look at Neptune's moon Triton or if we want to go look at an interstellar object passing through, could we actually create a comprehensive network to relay communications back from tiny probes? Well, in a sense, we already are. I mean, the, the Mars has had a communications relay network for, I think, 20 years now. A JPL colleague of mine named Chad Edwards was the, the, in, in charge of that. And that's how most of the pictures you see from the surface of Mars come to us. It goes from a, a rover up to a satellite and then back to Earth. Um, NASA is, and other people, including my own company, and are very seriously looking and doing the similar sorts of things on the moon. Um, Intuitive Machines is, is planning to launch a communication satellite for the moon. Now, one is you know, not going to go overhead all the time, but you had a bunch up there in, in low moon orbit. You, know, you would always have a communication satellite overhead, and you could talk to another another thing on the moon or you talk back to earth anytime you wanted to uh, you pay the bill because it's a commercial venture. So I think that is going to be, yes, that's going to be a big thing very quickly. Now, Where, anywhere we go, you're likely to have communications networks set up. And also what I like mesh networks. So it doesn't, it's not like it's fixed, you know, it's, it's, it sets itself up. And also what I call navigation mesh networks, where that you have various probes that are talking to each other and ranging to each other, or maybe taking angular data for each other. And so figuring out where everybody is relative to everybody else, in just the same way the communications mesh network figures out how to talk to everybody. Um, so you, you have a mobile ad hoc network for the communications, and you have the equivalent uh, for the navigation. That, I think, is coming. The trouble with doing that in deep space is almost always when you when you look at actually doing that, it's it's cheaper to build bigger things on Earth. So if I want to get a signal back from Triton, I could say, well, I will have a really big antenna on Earth, or I'll build a bunch of smaller antennas and array them together, or I could have nodes, nodes between here and Neptune. Well. And, and, and so you have a relay system. Well, the trouble with the relay system is everything moves around. And so, yes, I could set this up for a particular mission, but then in a few years, those spacecraft have moved, you know, more than Neptune has. And so it's no longer a straight line. But even if it is a straight line, you have every one of them is now a single point of failure. So every one of them has to work. So I have 10 or 20 or 30 nodes in my relay. That's that's a lot of possible failures out there in space. I can't fix them. I can't send a fix-it man to fix them. You know, If one fails, it just fails. And also, it's, it's like I'm sending small antennas that are very expensive out into deep space and they have to work. Or I can build antennas on Earth. And when you, when you look at the cost, it's almost always much cheaper to build a bigger antennas on Earth. See, the difference with a planet, say, or a moon or a satellite or an asteroid or something that you're exploring, and you're setting up a network on it, is you're really very close, you know? And, of course, there's a far side of the moon, there's a far side of Mars, 
you know, you can't talk to those things. And so setting up a network has advantages, advantages there too. But just setting up some network to go just far out almost never seems to make sense when you actually like look at the actual sort of efficiency of doing it. And we have to take a break. I'm joined today by Marshall Eubanks. And we come, when we come back, we're going to talk about something called VLBI, Very Long Baseline Interferometry, which is very important both in the idea of probing very distant objects in the universe, but also communicating with ones closer by that have weaker signals. We'll be back in a moment. 